0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farney. Spin into the center of your hometown. Hi, and welcome to episode 118 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today, as usual, this semester are two assistant professors of English at uh, Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan Gilmore. Howdy. And Danny Anderson. Hello. How are you guys doing?
1: I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well myself.
0: Well, we have a very large number of, uh, well, but not very large number, we happen to have three <laughs> listeners, <laughs> which is l- large for us, uh, <laughs> listener emails to go through before we get to our topic. Uh, Nathan, why don't you start us off?
1: All right, we got an email from listener Jonathan Reisman. Uh He asks a really valid question. He said he's listened to our New Hope episode. Uh, of course, the Return of the Jedi episode dropped just hours before we started recording this one. And he has a question that occurred to him that wasn't discussed. I quote In what order should a Star Wars neophyte watch the series? I've seen them, of course, but one day my kids will. And I was wondering what the best order is. What do you all think? And he offers these possibilities. Uh, he says, I've heard one, two, three, four, five, six is bad because it's a pretty weak start. Uh, it also is a, a fact that. Episodes 1, 2, and 3 rely on a basic knowledge of plot details from 4, 5, and 6. Uh he says 456123 has downsides as well, okay? He says one intriguing suggestion I've heard but haven't tried is 45236, skipping 1. Supposedly the narrative arc is more suspenseful this way since there's a question of what direction Luke will take at the end of 5 that gets heightened by being shown in the history of his father in two and three, before the resolution of the question, in six. What do you think? So I'll I'll take that on first, and then I'll let you guys weigh in as you see fit. I'm I'm inclined to say go four, five, six, one, two, three. Uh, I know some people say skip number one because it's that bad. I would argue it's no worse than episode number two. Um, So, I mean, I would set it up with four in which things are really sort of uh, introduced, and, you know, given their initial shape, they're fleshed out in five and six, and then by the time you get to episode one, uh, it really is the experience of seeing how these things come to pass that you already know are going to come to pass. It's an interesting experience, and again, you know, while the acting is bad and the prequels and the writing is bad, uh, it's only horrendous if you lose sight of some of the bad acting in the original trilogy so four five six one two three is my suggestion what would you guys
2: say i that's an interesting uh, the the email is an interesting concept sort of like a sort of godfather part two thing where you <laughs> yeah sort of, yeah uh, <laughs> i i I'd never thought i would have never thought to do that and i think that's interesting um i i if i were to do it i would just do though like nathan said i would do four five six and then two three i i think one is really largely a waste of time um, in that n- <laughs> it doesn't really give you any information that you won't assume by watching two and three, um, and then. Uh, but the idea of like uh, intercutting them is is interesting. I, I uh, that's intriguing. I might like to try that someday, just to, or not day, but uh, some week, just to uh, give it a shot.
0: If the prequels are as bad as I've heard, and again, I've only seen the first one. Um, holding off on Jedi until you've watched all three of them might be a way to get you through them. Mm-hmm. Well, we also have an email from, I think, I don't know if he's a new listener, but I think this is the first time he's emailed us. If not, I'm sorry. His name is Jeremy Simonow. He says, I love your podcast and try to follow them each week. I love the episode on Brothers Karamazov, having read the book a few times. Is there any way you can do more episodes on literature? Waiting for Moby Dick. For a layman like me, I can read Moby Dick, but I have trouble getting through Heidegger. What do you think, guys? Oh, can man. we do a Moby Dick episode? I, you know, You know I love that book.
1: Yeah, I mean it's been golly, fifteen years since I read Moby Dick, so I, I would have to brush up, but I, I'd be willing to try it.
0: It would have to be next semester, I'm sure.
2: That would be fun. Uh, December reading, actually.
0: Well, maybe maybe we'll do one. I mean, I could. I, I would have to reread it. It's been a few years now, and and that that is the that's the sort of book that you have to go back to because there's all sorts of stuff you forget is even in there. Right. Do you, ever, uh, right. Do, you
2: follow, do you follow Joyce Carol Oates on Twitter? Um, she actually just has been doing this thing about like uh, movie versions of classic books. I think based on this uh, uh, James Franco Faulkner movie that came out recently, As They Lay Dying. Um, but they talk about Moby Dick, starring Mike Tyson as Queequeg, um, and can have his picture <laughs> his picture on the cover. It was actually a pretty funny tweet. For I guess, that,
0: that's kind of uncomfortable for me. <laughs> that seems a little racist. <laughs> I mean, because he has the face tattoo, which I guess makes sense. That's what sense. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess, guess Queequeg is soft-spoken.
2: <laughs> With this high-pitched little lisp, right, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know, Mike Tyson uh, raises pigeons. So he's supposedly, he's supposedly very, very gentle with them.
2: I, I met him once years ago. Uh, he, he actually used to train at Don King's training camp in Ohio where I, I lived, and uh, and uh, he lived down the road from my cousin, and so I, I met him once. Did
0: he eat your children?
2: No, he was a perfectly gentle, scary man. So.
0: Did you guys, uh, like me, grow up playing uh, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out for the Nintendo? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. See that that that's what he always is in my uh in my imagination. <laughs> How did we yeah, get
1: well, to Mike Tyson? <laughs> well, well Joyce, the funny thing Joyce is, Joyce Of course, he was in my dad's English class when he was in prison. Is that uh, true? Wow. Oh yeah, yeah, and and uh, he said there's this little you know gangbanger that you know sort of attached himself to Mike Tyson, and he's talking to my dad after class one day, and he said, "Yeah, what I haven't told him is I used to kick his butt every day on my Nintendo." And my dad says, "I'm going to tell him he said that." <laughs> I never knew that about you Nathan that's
2: an awesome story.
1: Oh yeah 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 I mean my yeah that's my my closest you know brush with celebrity is my dad was Mike Tyson's English teacher. <laughs> that's awesome. And and according to a legend and I say legend I I know my dad's probably listening and he'll say ain't no legend but uh apparently he was talking to the guidance counselor one day and guidance counselor asked him how classes were going he said yeah they're all right uh, I don't. I don't think I like Mr. Gilmore's Modern Friction class, though. <laughs>
0: modern <laughs> friction. You know, though, I I seem to remember Tyson. I, I read an interview or something with him where he was talking about reading the great books. So, I mean, if if that's true and I'm not misremembering, uh, your, your father seems to have made an impact on him.
1: <laughs> Here's
2: open.
0: <hoping. laughs> well, Danny, we uh, we have one last email. Would you like to read it?
2: Yes, it's from Joel Joslin. Uh, Hello, have any of you seen the Star Wars Holiday Special? It is amazingly bad, so bad that it was only broadcast once in 1978 and never officially released on video. Most of it consists of either Chewbacca's family grunting with no one to interpret or Star Wars characters watching TV. There's a cooking show with a four-armed lady and a Jefferson Starship music video. (laughs) <laughs> and those aren't even the worst parts. <laughs> I tried to watch it online with my family once, and we couldn't make it more than halfway because it's so awful. I have heard about this, uh, and uh, I've actually never sat down to watch it, but uh, this makes me really want to. <laughs> yeah, that description, of... <laughs> I mean, really does invite one to see
1: if it's really all that. <laughs>
0: when I was a kid we had a big red book of Christmas songs for the piano And I, I, I went through them because I loved Christmas when I was a kid I guess I still like it Um, But there was a song in there, this strange song called What do you get a Wookiee for Christmas when he's already got a comb Which I can only assume is from the Star Wars uh, Christmas special <laughs> But since but since I had never seen Star Wars or heard of a Wookiee The song was this source of deep mystery to me <laughs> What's a Wookiee?
2: That is an amazing email.
0: <laughs> so sorry, we won't have a fourth episode of the triptych on uh on the uh on the Star Wars holiday special. <laughs> well our episode today is on this movement called Meta Modernism, which is uh, you know, new or non existent or it's one of the, the many things that has been Proposed as a successor to postmodernism, which may or may not be dead for reasons we'll get to in a minute. Um, it is rather perverse of us to begin by doing an episode about a successor to postmodernism, since we have not yet done an episode on postmodernism proper. Dana, I'm going to leave that to you. Can you give us the cocktail party version of postmodernism, hitting whatever it is you see as the high points?
2: Sure. And it's a, a vast thing. So I'm sure that I'll leave plenty of room for you guys to expand. But uh, I actually I kind of like Jonathan Lethem's summation that postmodernism is modernism without the anxiety. Uh, I think that this is a a, a, a you know, a little quote that I think makes a lot of sense to me. And it's common to summarize its relationship with with modernism as one of order versus disorder uh, in this sense. Uh, postmodernism is characterized by a kind of a lack of design, uh, and a typical move of postmodernism is, is to deny grand narratives, uh, things like the, you know, one sort of story that does sort of define everybody universally, um, uh, the, from which all things sort of spring. Uh, and, and as well as that, there's a kind of a playfulness in postmodernism that, uh, in literary art, you sort of it often will incorporate the process of production into the finished work. Uh, John Barth's uh, famous novel Chimera is sort of a, an example, a famous example of this where you have a character who is basically an avatar of the author entering the story in which the character is currently writing and this sort of thing. And so uh, basically it's a uh, uh, a way of sort of dis- like blurring uh, the collapsing the distinction between the world of fiction and the world that we all live in. Um, I'm reading Philip Roth's biography that just was published uh, called Roth Unbound right now. And uh, the author of that book says that Roth distinguishes these two worlds as the written world and the unwritten world. And and I think that this is a, a very kind of postmodern concept right there. Um, and so in place of universal and also in, uh, place of these universal objectives, truths or experiences, you have basically a lot of sort of local subjective ones that are kind of only given meaning in their interaction with other local experiences. And there is no sort of uh, guiding hand uh, to any of this. It's all very random. Um, and so I will say though, this notion of order versus disorder is kind of a normal talking point version of postmodernism. But I, I personally find it a little bit unsatisfying uh, when you take a... a for. A, A look at a book like The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner, uh, you see a literary experience that obsesses over these same kinds of contingencies. I mean, like everybody's telling the same story from four different perspectives in that that book. And and so I feel like um, the difference is there's a mournfulness in in modernism that doesn't exist so much in postmodernism, as uh, Lethem suggests. And I personally, Stephen Connor has uh, written about postmodernism uh, and his kind of distinction between modernism and postmodernism uh, is the one that makes the, uh, I can get my head around the, the, the clearest. He claims that modernism is more concerned with epistemological questions, like how we uh, perceive truth and how we perceive knowledge. And this, that makes sense from the Sound of the Furies uh, perspective. And postmodernism is about ontological questions, uh, where you sort of, what is the nature of a world in, in general? And then that, that's that, uh, the kind of question that's being asked is really sort of the main distinction of them uh, between the two, uh, uh, kind of movements that are always put into opposition with each other. And I know that I've glossed over a million parts of it. So, uh, <laughs> Nathan, uh, if you want to sort of fill, fill in the gaps that I've left.
1: Yeah, I think, I think what you've given is a very good, uh, take of of what i would consider literary postmodernism one of the tricky parts of that term is that in it it exists in a different register in several different fields of inquiry so in literature i mean what what danny just talked about you know as the uh the gravity and the anxiety versus the lightness is very much you know what i would consider sort of a narrative postmodernism in biblical studies which is a field that really the field where I first encountered the idea of the postmodern. Uh, generally, the contrast is not between anxiety and lightness, but rather between a strong historicism. Uh, in other words, you know, the aim of biblical studies is to get behind the text and find the world that resides there. Uh, so therefore, you get, you know, sort of the conflict between Valhousian, uh historical criticism versus fundamentalist historical criticism in other words the question is always what really happened and then the postmodern turn in biblical studies has more to do with a turn towards the text itself as a complex interacting surface Uh, so you get things like reader response criticism rhetorical criticism things like that that dominate what gets called the postmodern movement in biblical studies Um, now, I'm I'm not an architecture student. I got C's in architectural drawing in high school, uh, but I do know that modernist architecture is one that is uh, very, very interested in sort of abstract forms, uh, geometric play, whereas postmodernism is more interested in referentiality and self-referentiality. So, again, just in those three very limited frames there, uh you get three very different constellations of emphasis when it comes to the nature of postmodern. Uh so one of the things that, you know, I'm definitely gonna want to talk about as we continue into this conversation about meta modernism is which of those fields uh is meaningfully having a meta modern moment and which ones, you know, look like simply a permutation of the postmodern uh one one other field michael and then i'll kick it back to you is is the historical thesis of of leotard uh because uh, as far as i know his is the most famous early use of the term postmodern uh in the uh let's see here Oh, what is it? The Postmodern Condition is the the subtitle. Uh, Oh, is that the main title? Yeah, A
0: Report on Knowledge is the subtitle.
1: A Report on Knowledge, that's what it is. I thought the knowledge bit was the main title. Okay, I flipped him. I often do that. Uh, But his is actually a historical thesis, uh, namely that modernism is an era where people can imagine their own moment historically as part of what he calls a meta-narrative. And his big big two meta-narratives are the capitalist meta narrative in which the aim of history is to get everyone into liberal democracy, and then the Marxist meta narrative in which history is a succession of revolutions that result in whatever the next revolutionary state is. Uh Leotard wants to say that as a historical thesis, the postmodern is this moment where local histories uh start to become suspicious of those grand narratives as mere And I'm I'm going to use a term here that's not leotards, but makes sense to me as mere colonizing moments. So those are, I I guess, we're up to four iterations of the postmodern, Michael. I mean, would you add a fifth or? I I don't know. Are you are you just tipping a fifth at this point?
0: I don't know if it's a fifth or if it's just part of the initial one that Danny gave. But my favorite definition of postmodernism, maybe besides leotards, is is John Barth's. Where he says he says in the introduction to um, a re-release of his first two novels that he was a, he's a nihilist, but he's a smiling nihilist, and 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 that to me gets at the heart of the kind of philosophical and artistic project of of postmodernism, which is yeah, I mean all, all these there's no such thing as meaning, you know. Camus was right, Sartre was right. All you know, we we live in an absurd universe, uh, which is forever threatening to cave in on us. Our our dreams and goals will one day disappear, but this should not be the cause for anxiety. Instead, let's have a good time with it. Uh, um, and and I, I think I think that is somewhere close to the heart of the at least the early postmodern project. Now, the the, the idea that say, but because uh, Vermulen and Vaninak are the guys we're going to be talking about in a minute, because they put the death of postmodernism in the late the, the late part of the first decade of the twenty first century. To say that. Somebody writing in 1999, to say Franzen's Corrections, for example, is smiling nihilism, I, I, I think is probably taking it a bit far. But at least that first generation of postmodernists, I think, largely fall under Barth's, uh, Barth's description of postmodernism as smiling nihilism. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure Franzen has ever smiled about anything.
1: <laughs> not nihilism yes. or otherwise. He and by the way, listeners, I I do plan on curating at some point an episode on postmodernism. Michael just got the drop on me,
0: but in a remarkably postmodern turn, we're uh, going. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a modernist term. As, uh, turn as we've talked about. I mean, in our modernism episode, I mean, modernist literature is the one that really begins to play with time in in fun ways. Postmodernism continues that project.
1: Well, sure, sure. And one of the things that's that's interesting is that what gets called modernism in uh, in literary studies often bears more resemblance to postmodernism in biblical studies. So, I, I, again, it's it's a very fluid term.
0: I'm sure in our modernism, I don't remember, I'm sure, but I'm sure in our modernism episode we complained at infinitum about how stupid a term that is, and postmodernism is even stupider because, <laughs> because you have a, a falsely chronological term like modernism, and to it you have added another chronological term.
1: Oh, and see, I thought modernism was uh, philosophy with ice cream.
0: Uh,
1: <laughs> a la mode.
0: Well, moving on, probably the most important aspect of postmodernism, as far as metamodernism is concerned, is its, is its use of irony. Um, we talked about cynicism and irony back in our Generations episode at the beginning of the year, but Nathan, how are they part of the generalized postmodern project?
1: Well, uh, the way that this essay uh, explains irony is that it is a stance of questioning and a stance of what I would call the hermeneutics of suspicion. Uh, So he gives sort of three vectors of, or they give three vectors of what they call irony. Uh, One of them is the deconstructive impulse of finding internal contradictions in systematic uh, philosophies, narratives, so on and so forth. Uh, One of them is... Uh, the sort of well I mean the question of meta, meta- narratives which we've already talked about uh in terms of you know marxism capitalism, so on and so forth uh and then I mean I guess the third vector that I sort of picked out in their um, examination here uh is i i guess what I would call you know a referentiality in other words, you know we're not going to render the Artifacts of human culture as transparent, so that we look through them, but we're going to look at them. Uh, so, for them, these three acts of suspicion you know, of the material conditions of cultural production, of the meta narrative as a historical strategy uh, of philosophical system uh, these are all characteristics of what they call uh, modernist sincerity or i got they don't use sincerity do they 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 call it naivete actually uh and then the suspicion of these things is postmodern irony uh now I, I i keep holding them at arm's length because when i think of irony and you guys can tell me if i'm if i'm thinking of this too narrowly uh i think of it first and foremost in terms of that referentiality in other words uh you know let me point out the fact that i'm aware that i am part of a cultural trend sort of thing i i don't see the suspicion of meta narratives in the student riots in paris in 1968 as first and foremost an ironic moment uh, i don't think of deconstruction as derrida I practice it first and foremost as an ironic stance towards philosophical texts uh i think of them certainly as you know extensions of what i would think of as a a Nietzschean hermeneutics of suspicion uh but irony I think of as something a lot more lighthearted than what two of those three things are doing uh am I just being too serious Danny
2: no I I have I completely agree with you on that point I feel like uh when I think of irony I think of sort of those 90s movies you know where you know um you know people are just sort of you having fun like the smiling nihilist of uh, yeah yeah that that Barth uh that, that Michael brought up from Barth uh that that's sort of i think like you, there's an understanding that there is no meaning and there's no sort of like anxiety about that and and so this is why um you know it becomes sort of cool in the 90s to have advertising that it references its own like ironic state is yes we recognize we're just trying to sell you something in a cheesy way so let's make it as cheesy as possible right and so there's a uh, – right right. Um, the, the yeah. Mentos effect yes or, the, yeah. or I, the
0: the Sprite the Sprite commercials where they uh, where they they make these grandiose claims for Sprite and then then say image is nothing taste is everything
2: yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Right. Um, and then there are like uh, I, there's a, I remember a commercial with Grant Hill. It was for some soft drink, I think it was Sprite. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and there was some sort of uh, like dollar signs above his head because he's realizing how much money he's making by uh, like advertising products. And so to me, that's irony. And it's sort of like <clears throat> smiling at the abyss. Uh, and, and it doesn't have anything really to do with the kind of um, uh, like seeing through project that you're talking about. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it does. And I'm missing it. But uh, like, to me, I, I don't see them as synonymous, at least.
0: It seems like, it seems like those are seeing through to me. They're, la- they're making transparent the power relationships involved in, you know, uh, an advertisement or in a television show or in a movie or in whatever. And, and in, the, the difference is, the difference between them and the student riots in 1968 is that they've become cynical. They they see through this power structure and then they just kind of chuckle at it instead of wanting to change it. The the degree to which the the Paris student riots in 1968 can be legitimately described as postmodern, I don't I don't know. I think, I think the two writers who we read for today would probably say they the, those riots belong more to modernism in the sense that they are naive about a better future.
2: I, I would yeah, that seems to me to be. Uh a good observation about that because it doesn't, if they're, they're trying to accomplish something and they think that they can accomplish something then. And so their act of seeing through has an end to it. There's a teleological sort of goal to it. And, and, uh, whereas, uh, th- a typical sort of postmodern stance of irony doesn't have that teleological goal. Well,
1: Michael, help me out here. I mean, what distinction are you drawing then between the ironic and the, cynical because i mean you you use those two terms as a sort of opposition pair uh what distinction would you draw between them
0: where did i use them as an opposition pair
1: uh yeah because i mean you yeah, yeah. well no you didn't and no you didn't i mean you said okay never mind i remembering now you said that the student riots which often people point to as sort of the beginning of the postmodern uh are themselves not a postmodern move at all
0: not not in the sense that Vermeulen and Vandenacker and since we've already used their names about ten times let's just go ahead and say we're talking about a article that we posted to the Facebook feed a couple of weeks ago called uh, <laughs> Notes on Metamodernism and it's by these two mm. Dutch cultural critics I assume they're Dutch they both teach yeah. in, in, in the Netherlands anyway and they, they right have, they have at Dutch-y Erasmus names. University no less yeah so, so I mean, I I think by their definition, the student riots belong more to modernism. Now, I mean, part of part of the problem we're running into is there is no really good definition of postmodernism, and they even talk about this that. that it, <laughs>
1: well, they kind of nod to it and then they say, but really, what postmodernism is is irony.
0: Right, right. <laughs> that, that that really you have to talk about postmodernisms, but I, yeah. I I think I think they are dealing more with what you might call late postmodernism.
1: Yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. And and again, that's one of those things where I, I'm willing to go along with their thesis as long as we're willing to limit their scope that much.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, for example, I don't think they have much to say about architecture. Or maybe they do, and I just, you know, don't understand architecture enough, too.
2: <laughs> uh, that was a question I had about the article, The Architecture. There's a photo of a building that I it's supposedly meta modern because it's sincere in some way that postmodern architecture isn't, and I don't see the difference between that and a Frank and <laughs> a Frank Gehry building. Like, I, yeah. I frankly, I don't see why a Frank Gehry building is insincere and ironic. I think so, I think
0: we would have to get we would have to get an expert in architecture to talk about it because I've I I can understand sometimes when when people show pictures of I can understand why Le Corbusier, for example, is uh, is modern. Yeah. But yeah. but for the most part I need somebody smarter than me or at least more knowledgeable in architecture than me to explain it to me.
1: Right. Now, one one other thing though, I mean, uh, other than the architectural, I one of the movements that I think of as sort of paradigmatically postmodern is the post-colonial movement, and it seems like this article sort of dismisses that as well, that's last year's trend. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm thinking, okay, then in that case, I mean, what you mean by postmodernism is this sort of uh, ironic or cynical, whichever term you want to use, self-referential consumerism. Yeah. And and if that is, I mean, the scope of what you're doing, that's fine. I'd I'd be inclined, though, to limit the term to a subset of postmodernism rather than to make the move that these two gentlemen do and say that all the rest of it is also part of what we're talking about.
0: No, and I I think that's fair. I mean, limiting your scope is is usually a pretty good thing, especially when you're talking about a broad movement spanning 50-plus years. Right, right. And, and 11 disciplines. You know?
1: <laughs> but I'll, I'll quit griping about the, the definition of postmodernism here because I know that that's, no, I mean, it's probably worth, our listeners already find me tedious. <laughs> it's,
0: it's, worth, it's worth griping about because if you're listening to what we're saying and you are taking a broad definition of postmodernism, what we're saying probably doesn't make a lot of sense. But I, I think what they're – maybe even – it may be best to say that what they're responding to is not so much postmodernism as postmodernity. The, okay. the, the cultural conditions that are produced after a generation of postmodern philosophers, artists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Fair enough. I, I came at this essay through David Foster Wallace's long, long essay on the state of television in the early 90s. Um, it's called E Unibus Plurum. And he says he says essentially postmodern irony, and he uses the term basically the way I've been using it. He calls it postmodern cool or postmodern irony, is corrosive to the human soul, after a while, and and you know, one of the reasons irony was developed was to fight back against capitalism and advertisement, but the problem is that television in the early 90s had completely incorporated the. I mean, Danny brought this up brilliantly. I thought has completely incorporated. The ironic attack on capitalism into its presentation of capitalism, which means if we want to resist capitalism, if we want to resist corporatism, if we want to resist all these other things that are damaging to the human soul in the 90s, and presumably in the 2010s as well, then uh, then we're going to have to find something some way other than irony to do it, because Irony has been—it's not that irony is dead; it's that irony reigns supreme. It's—it's it's been too mm-hmm. incorporated. How do you how do you take an ironic attitude toward television when there's a Sprite commercial that takes an ironic attitude toward itself?
1: Right, right. And this is why, advertisement analysis is such a tricky assignment to teach in freshman comp. Right. Because freshmen, by and large, don't have the tools yet to process irony. Which is why you get these hilarious papers where they say, this ad is promising that lots of good-looking teenage women will jump on you if you wear X body spray. It's like, no, it's actually not.
0: <laughs> and yet it is at the same time, right? I mean, because it's, it's, it's an advertisement. I mean, it's obviously telling you that you were going to be more attractive to the opposite sex. But at the same time, it's making fun of you for thinking that that would happen.
1: Right, right, and it's that complexity that is often beyond the scope of a freshman composition paper.
0: Miz on a beam in the and the television advertisement. There's your there's your paper title. <laughs> okay, well let's let's go back to these these two cultural critics, um, Vermeulen. I, I don't speak Dutch, so I, I assume that name is pronounced Vermeulen. But uh, if if a, we have a Dutch listener and I've got that name wrong, please feel free to write in and tell us. Uh, Vermulen and Vannevar, they they say that postmodernism, if it's not dead, it's at least kind of in the late stages of its life, <laughs> and, and they say that it it wasn't as a lot of people thought it was going to be nine eleven that killed it off. Um, Danny, what do they identify as the real ending point <clears throat> or points for postmodernism, and do they have a point?
2: Well, they sort of, uh, as best I can tell, uh, identify sort of three simultaneous things that are going on. They call it, a, I think, a triple threat. I think it's how they phrase it, of uh, a credit crunch, uh, the, a collapsed center, and climate change. Um, and so what they're claiming is that these events, um, these sort of, uh, are they permeate everything. They aren't just isolated events that can be sort of contextualized and dealt with, but they are sort of universalizing things that have, uh, far reaches, um, and they infuse doubt, um, which inspires reflection, and incites a move forward. And so, this is in some ways they resemble uh, the student riots of nineteen of, of sixty eight, which you were talking about earlier. In that way, and, and, and I think to a degree, and as this makes sense as a uh, a recon- like the sort of having to live with the corrosive effects of, uh, cynicism as as David Foster Wallace says it, right. Um, um, does sort of, uh, put like a real consequence in front of you and might incite people to actually try and escape it on on some level. And and I'm thinking, you know, I'm not a a philosopher, you know, a philosophical thinker. It's easier for me to, you know, grasp onto objects. And so I'm thinking of this, uh, early two thousands, uh, kind of mega romantic comedy that um, my wife and I happen to watch all the time. We love it. Uh, It's called uh, Love Actually. I don't know if you saw this. Um, Oh, yes. uh, My
0: wife loves that movie.
2: (laughs) And uh, uh, to me, this is a clear post 9-11 movie. I mean, that's sort of written into the... Uh, the prologue of the movie. Uh, And it's clearly postmodern. You have people sort of relishing their sort of ironic positions and realizing that everything they do is crap and and it doesn't matter because it's still fun and this sort of thing. Um, Smiling into the abyss sort of. Um, And yet it is also uh, at the same time taking that and trying to um, develop some sort of meaning out of human relationships um, that, you know, result out of these sort of broken lives. And so, um, I feel like that's a movie that I'm picturing in my mind when I'm reading about this uh, attempt to sort of recover from the cynicism, while not uh, necessarily escape, not not coping with the cynicism without except, essentially trying to escape it in some ways, trying to make something productive out of it. Um, however, the the problem that I'm I'm faced when I'm thinking about this concept is that I feel like this sentiment predates this, uh, even before these stated events are, are happening. And so like, you talk about David Foster Wallace writing about this decades, a, a full decade, at least before, um, all these events that they're, uh, naming here. And, and, and maybe you can make the argument, I suppose, that this post postmodernism movement, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> sort of picks up, uh, a sentiment that exists in a strain of postmodern culture um, and and, and sort of latches on to a portion of postmodernism to sort of call its own. And maybe at some point that does become its own sort of distinct thing. But uh, I really, to me, it's easier to think of what they're describing as metamodern as a kind of variant of, a kind of postmodernism. I don't really see a distinction between what's going on in the era they're describing as postmodern.
0: Nathan, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I couldn't help it, but remember um, the change that I saw in late 2008, early 2009 among – actually, I don't know if they even call themselves this anymore, but the artists formerly known as Emergent Christianity um, (laughs) – And yeah, it was. I mean, it, it was this this shift from uh you know, this sort of playful irony into I mean, what we're going to talk about here in a little while, I mean sort of the what I would call a schizophrenic uh oscillation. uh you know our our authors here would want to celebrate this oscillation between just utterly sincere moralism and then a return to nineties irony. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I would say the nomination of Barack Obama as the DNC candidate in 2008 was the end of postmodern, if I were going to put a, an ending point on it. But along with Danny, you know, what I want to say is, I mean, you know, the, the, the moment when postmodern ceases, ceases to be mainstream is the moment when postmodern critique actually becomes interesting and useful in a new way. So yeah, I'll agree with Danny that, I mean, it's it's something that was happening well before 9-11, and it's something that, you know, really didn't catch on until well after 9-11. So, ultimately, 9-11 is certainly a, a, a watershed mark in foreign policy, in, you know, domestic spying policy, but I don't know if it has much to do with postmodernism.
0: Oh well, yeah, I mean, it, I just bring up 9-11 because when that happened the death of irony was proclaimed in all public quarters.
1: Yeah. And that lasted about eight days. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't know, maybe a little longer than that. Uh, I don't know if you remember the first Saturday Night Live episode after nine eleven, but they had Rudy Giuliani come on with, uh, the surviving members of the, uh, New York city fire department that was involved in the, uh,
1: Oh, okay. In the Twin
0: Towers, and and Paul Simon sang "The Boxer," you know, and 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 you know, it was a very sincere, moving moment. But a couple of weeks after that, they had Will Ferrell wearing a uh, American flag as a thong.
1: Yeah, y- yeah, y- you know. So I mean, and see, it- I don't remember that. What I do remember is uh, John Stewart weeping in front of the camera on The Daily Show, and then two weeks later, he was a guest on David Letterman, where Letterman viciously mocked him for weeping.
0: Really, because Letterman also uh, cried. Oh yeah, yeah, but he got over it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, actually, I mean, th- this may be more appropriate to talk about in a little while, but I think the difference between Letterman and and Stewart is a instructive difference between what we might call high postmodernism and metamodernism. Whether you see metamodernism oh, yeah, yeah. as a successor movement or as a branch of late postmodernism, I don't know. Right,
1: right. But like you said, we can talk about that when it rolls along.
0: The other thing to point out is I, I think what you're talk what we're talking about here, the the movement between sincerity and irony is actually something that probably predates postmodernism as a movement. I mean I, I I've been rereading the myth of Sisyphus and I think I think you get even a little of it there. You you get the idea that life is absurd and there's no meaning and there's no hope. And yet, to some extent, you should continue living not as if there was hope because Camus is very clear that you're supposed to live as though you have no hope, you have no appeal. But you you kind of live from a phony hope within yourself that you know is phony in a weird way. That's a hard essay to summarize.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That uh, does recall what they're talking about, uh, the philosophical grounding uh, of this. I mean, the the Kantian epistemology they mention in this Mm -hmm. is about sort of um, existing in the as if they keep using, uh, uh, you know, as if there is meaning, as if there is some sort of, uh, uh, you know, overarching grand narrative or whatever, that uh, uh, even though you you know there really isn't, there's something uh, enticing or instructive about living as if there is.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I, I I don't know if if Camus would totally go down that role, but I I, I think or that road. Excuse me, but I think you see um. You you see shadows of it in in Myth of Sisyphus and some of his other writings. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all we've proven is that chronological divisions of phil- philosophy don't really make a lot of sense. <laughs> and I I think if you've, if you've listened to us for more than a couple episodes, you probably already knew we thought that. Well, um, we, we've we kind of been dancing around it. Nathan, can you give us a, a brief definition of metamodernism as it's defined in this article?
1: Sure, and I kept tipping my hat earlier because it's so hard to talk about this without giving their definition, but uh, the big idea that I came away with is that whereas modernism is what they call a naive or fanatical confidence in rationality, uh, historical progress, so on and so forth, whereas postmodernism is a what they would call an ironic suspicion of progress and reason uh the neologism or new phrase however you want to render it uh that they propose is a both neither relationship between naivete and uh irony uh so whereas you know postmodernism famously wanted to approach things with a both and approach uh metamodernism, as they formulate it, uh, doesn't allow both of them to be held in a sort of dialectical tension, but instead there is a sort of, uh, I, I don't know what adjective to apply to it, so I'll probably kick that back to you too, but an oscillation uh, between the ironic and the fanatical, uh, so that the same person can, as a, a metamodern manifestation to continue the alliteration, uh, be entirely convinced of this as if that Danny just talked about in one moment uh, entirely you know ironically detached from any sort of hope and possibility in the next and so on and so forth so oscillation and the both neither are the big concepts I came around with Danny is there anything else that you would add to that
2: no I, this is sort of the concept that I, I, I don't I, I don't Quite understand uh, this is the that oscillation I mean is the term that they that they use as the that movement is the space of metamodernism right there the 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 ability to move between these two uh, perceptions of the world and 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 I don't it does for some reason it doesn't sit right with me and I haven't been able to verbalize why um, I, I find it to be maybe it's because I appreciate the the dialectical the ability to sort of dialectically hold uh, two opinions at the same time, and and I feel like that is sort of the the true kind of um, like humanistic value that uh, is left out of this, where you sort of pragmatically use it to therapeutically uh, recover from some sort of nihilistic impulse or something and then uh as a way to sort of escape nihilism temporarily before going back to it to me is more of a nihilistic act than being able to sort of hold both at the same time simultaneously at all times and so it's that idea of moving between like escaping one and and fleeing to the other that is sort of schizophrenic to me um and this is uh it's a, a very interesting article but uh it it raises more confusion in me and maybe this is why it, it's interesting uh, than it does provide answers
0: <laughs> the idea here i think is that the metamodernist wishes wishes to live in the society described by the modernist he wishes or she wishes to believe in hegel's history right that history is a fulfillment of something Mm-hmm. He, or or Marx, if you prefer he he wishes to live in a world that makes sense, and yet he has been made too aware of of power struggles and all the other things that that postmodernism brings to the table that makes it difficult to believe in those things and yet perhaps and I think this is why the credit crunch is important postmodernism is a luxury provided by a decadent society. And if the world is on the decline, if, if, if prosperity is over, you no longer have that luxury. And yet you can't escape the frame of mind created by postmodernity, and And that's why the oscillation. I, I I now maybe they would disagree with me, but I I don't see metamodernism as a conscious choice so much as a position you're forced into and I'm moving my hand back and forth as if you could see it. Uh, a position a position you're forced into by you know, the movements of history. And yet perhaps you have to act like it's a, a choice too because uh, that that would be the the modernist uh attitude at least some branches of modernism. Does that make sense on my way off?
2: No, that actually um that makes some sense to me. Um the uh is is it yeah, as a uh, as a condition, uh, the the modern condition. I mean, this is sort of uh um uh it's not necessarily a uh, uh an epistemological like choice, but it's actually something that is uh just sort of environmental and so that that actually does make some sense to me.
0: And I am not sure they would agree with me because I, I they do seem when they when they analyze some of these artists they're talking about, they do they do seem to present it as a as a conscious decision. But I, I to mm. me it makes more sense if you think about it as a position which the meta is forced into. Mm-hmm. by by the way the world works. Well, uh, Vermeulen and Vandenacker give a number of metamodernist examples from the worlds of both mass and high culture, uh, but let's take a few minutes here and, and talk about other cultural artifacts that exemplify this oscillation between sincerity and irony. And, you know, we'll each do one or two and we'll go around the horn. So, Danny, when you're, uh, when you're done, just pass the baton over to Nathan.
2: All right. Well, I mentioned the movie Love Actually already, um, and I, I would stand by that. I think that that is... Uh, I, this is the image that comes to mind, is this movie, uh, when I'm reading this article. but And I think I've mentioned before on this podcast uh, Michael Chabon, and I feel like his fiction is clearly uh, playful in, in its sort of world building, and so it's ontological in the way that I see Postmodern fiction as being it's sort of it's uh, it's playing with the idea of worlds and mixing realities together in a sort of playful way, which serves to deny this sort of overarching meaning giving narrative. And so and yet in a book like the Yiddish Policeman's Union, uh, which I think is just a brilliant uh, book is um, you have this real project of trying to create something meaningful out of this um, this mess. It, it doesn't just uh, gleefully kind of wallow in the mess, right? It's trying, the whole idea is is trying to establish this idea uh, of heritage and and familial relationships out of this completely uncertain world. Um, And and so I feel like that book particularly, and I think Shabon in general, his his work is is one of trying to um, um, uh, recover some sort of uh, sincerity uh, out of, the potential cynical nihilism of of postmodernism, and you'd mentioned uh, David Foster Wallace before. I have actually not read that much of him, but uh, recently a student of mine, uh, uh, Carlos, this is a shout out to you, um, he uh, introduced, he pointed my me to a, a speech he gave at Kenyon College, a convention, a commencement speech, uh, that in which he really does. Uh, it's a very kind of sobering. Uh, commencement speech, particularly for the genre of the commencement speech. It's very much about, like, uh, trying to get people to take themselves, like, seriously as members of a community of other people in which your uh, relationships with others are are sort of uh, uh, something that's uh, at stake, and that he really does call for – uh, he does make the claim that everybody is always worshiping uh, at all times, and whether it's a religious kind of worship or or shopping at the mall it, it is a it is a kind of worship. And, and so, uh, what do you do with this worship? Is sort of the the question that's raised. And, and I feel like that to me is is a very much an extension of this earlier essay that you're talking about, in which he uh, uh, derides the the corrosive cynicism of of. Uh, the corrosiveness of cynicism, and he—I think—he's trying to recover this. Ironically, just a couple of years before he himself commits suicide, uh, which is, it, which is like a, a a pall that's cast over watching that whole speech. But um, uh, to me, those are sort of two examples that I could think of. And I think that the, if you wanted to re- YouTube, that speech—I think it's called "This Is Water" uh, is the name of the uh, the speech.
0: And it was it was also published as a little book, I believe, after his death.
2: Oh, okay. That's even more ironic.
0: Jeez. I've read none of Wallace's fiction. I've read a good deal of his nonfiction, and yeah, I agree. He seems to he seems to be a precursor to this movement.
2: Ethan, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I, I, I'm going to talk about just a couple of the architectural examples that the article cites. One of them is the De Young Museum in San Francisco, and the oscillation that uh, our authors point to there is. First of all, between this postmodernism or this postmodern, pardon me, uh eschewal of geometric form and sort of the uh the modernist uh obsession with abstraction. I mean, it's definitely uh something where you see shapes, but they are cast in positive and negative areas. They are, you know uh on one hand a, a grand tower is the same shape as a courtyard somewhere else uh but on the other hand i mean there's there's asymmetry a there is you know uh, a great deal of of postmodern sentiment that appears to be in it now where they would identify it as meta modern uh is that it also in its architectural design uh resembles a giant hulk of a ship rusting uh, so it's that oscillation between the sort of uh, decay uh, that invites restoration and so on and so forth, and then a postmodernism playfulness of form uh, that would deny the possibility that you know such restoration could happen. The other artifact that I would point to is the national stadium in Beijing. If you watch the 2008 Summer Olympics, you would have seen this. Uh, it is... Again, something that when you look at photographs, uh, you can definitely see what I would call a postmodern aesthetic at work there. You know, it is uh, experimenting with geometric form rather than trying to build around the geometric form. There are a lot of features to it that are incidental rather than essential. Uh, It seems to be very, very inclined towards decoration rather than uh, inherent structure And yet, again, what they say is that, on the other hand, it bears strong resemblances to natural structures like a bird's nest or to a forest or to things like that uh, that indicate, you know, that there is still this reaching forward towards a sort of organic natural order. Uh, So, again, you know, uh, it's hard for me, again, because I cut my teeth in the late 90s on, you know, postmodern art theory uh, to see this as a strong departure from the postmodern, but those are the terms in which our article narrates uh, that stepping beyond, that transcendence. Michael, what artifacts would you point to?
0: Well, I came I came to this article because I was writing a paper on the television show Parks and Recreation, which I think is is very much a an example of metamodernism. I'm, have either of you seen that show? Yes. Okay. No. So Danny, at least we'll know what I'm talking about you You have on that show and and it's interesting to see how that show changed from the first season to the to the second and and then it has remained relatively consistent you You have a a character who, in the first season encouraged to laugh at for her naivete L- Leslie nopu, who, who is this you know firm believer in the power of government. Which is mostly bureaucracy, and she, she mostly kind of drowns in it early on in the show. But as the show progresses, she becomes hyper capable. She becomes really a feminist icon, and and, and, and she becomes this. Well, you know, uh, Vermeulen and Vanden Acker would identify her as naive, they, they would identify her as a. A modernist in the sense that she she believes that government can make a difference in people's lives and that we're kind of government can move us toward a better place. So, you know, it's no surprise that this show comes out in the spring of two thousand nine, right after Obama's elected. <laughs> a lot of yeah. her a lot of her rhetoric is very much his rhetoric from um, from that first election cycle. She is opposed uh, in in this goal by the supervisor in her, in her department, Ron Swanson, who is kind of become a meme in his own right who, who is who is a very okay so that's
1: where that name comes from right. yeah.
0: he's a very hyper masculine libertarian who who continually points out the uselessness of government the weaknesses of government and and the show is this kind of collision between the two of them and and, and so as a viewer because both of them are likable and sympathetic especially after that first season Um, If anybody watched the first season of that show and then gave up on it because it was a turd, um, go back to it. It got much better after that. The first season is terrible.
2: (laughs) Yeah, when they brought Rob Lowe's character in, it was just, uh, to me, that was... That was brilliant. Well,
0: yeah. and just a few weeks ago, they had a bit between Rob Lowe's character and Adam Scott's character. They're they're these two auditors from the state, and they work together because Rob Lowe is super, super enthusiastic and positive, and Adam Scott is, is super, super negative. And they, they work together in the sense that, you know, when they have to come in and, and fire people from a department – they use both of these sides, and, and that too is an oscillation. The biggest one I see is in the marriage. I mean, the literal marriage between the character April, who is really a living embodiment of what Wallace calls cool, uh, cool irony. Yeah. She, she's just super flat and disaffected and ironic and sarcastic, and she ends up marrying this idiot man-child who is super <laughs> enthusiastic about everything. And and that is the show's stroke of genius, this marriage between them because it is a it is a model of everything uh everything metamodernism is about. I mean, because it's not like in that marriage Andy, the the husband becomes cynical and it's it's not like other than a few flashes here and there, April becomes Sincere and enthusiastic. It it, it really is a, a oscillation between the two of them. Just watching, and that's emblematic of the show as a whole. So, I mean, um, th- this is how I came into the article because I was trying to find a way to explain what this show does. And it's it's no surprise, or it shouldn't be a surprise, that the showrunner and creator of that show, Mike Mike Shore, is a huge David Foster Wallace fan. Like he wrote his mm. he wrote his uh, undergraduate thesis at Harvard on Wallace. He owns the film rights to Infinite Jest. He directed a decemberist video and it's it's based on a scene in infinite jazz so i mean i think he's doing this consciously to the degree that metamodernism is conscious um I, I think i think he is trying to posit the sincerity on this show as a cure for postmodern irony at the same time recognizing that you can't go back to flat to, to straight sincerity mm. um so i i um i i, I see that show as, as a cultural embodiment of these principles
2: Yeah, and it's true, like the the Leslie Nope, Ron Swanson, I mean, they're ideologically polar opposite, and yet there's also a real affection between them. I mean, they don't dislike each other. I mean, they actually respect each other and help each other, uh, like in spite of their ideologies. And and it it is a really uh, kind of a beautiful image of what of the ideal of American government is, right? The sort of a cross spectrum working together. um, But at the same time, it undermines it, right? Because
0: yes. Very little that they seek out to accomplish actually gets accomplished, and yet you are encouraged as a viewer to continue to believe that it can. Yeah. The the show refuses to privilege either her or Ron Swanson. He is a parody because everybody on that show is a parody. There's nobody on that show who's not a live-action cartoon. <laughs> but he may be the most sympathetic Republican character on television since the Michael J. Fox character from Family Ties. <laughs>
2: hmm It's true.
0: The, the other thing we should at least tip our hat to because we we post i posted the article for this too and we we were probably not otherwise going to talk about it is this this idea of quirkiness um i i posted an article by james mcdowell who's a british film critic called notes on quirky and he he identifies this this um film aesthetic called quirky and if you've ever seen a wes anderson movie i think that is the the ur er example you get this super fastidious super childish aesthetic that is nevertheless nevertheless has real darkness lurking around the corner mm-hmm. so i mean if you th- that article is worth reading even though we're not going to discuss it in as much detail as as we discussed the other one that that quirky here is an example of of metamodernism in the sense that it proposes a return to childhood that it knows is impossible mhm so those were my examples <laughs> I mean, actually, I guess one of them was Vermeulen and Vandenacker's example, because they, they, they actually point to that article, which I think is published in their journal. I think it's published in the journal Notes on Metamodernism, not to be confused with the article Notes on Metamodernism, which is published in a different journal.
2: <laughs> how how postmodern. Yeah, we're back to the Miz Beam.
0: <laughs> well, let's fight. Um <laughs> <laughs> when we talked briefly about metamodernism after last week's show Nathan, you told me that uh you felt your jaw clenching involuntarily as you read this article. What what exactly is it about metamodernism, about their or about their analysis of it that makes you so gosh darn angry?
1: Well, here here's why. I mean, first of all, I'll just go ahead and make the postmodern move of I self-identifying my ideology. Uh you know, I like I said I cut my teeth on postmodernism in the 1990s as an undergrad. Uh, that approach to the intellectual life makes a fair bit of sense to me. And I'll I'll go ahead and say that by postmodernism, I tend to mean the postcolonial, the rhetorical criticism, more so than the ironic consumerism. Uh, In my mind, you know, ironic consumerism is an object of postmodern critique, not necessarily postmodern in its own right. So I'll go ahead and say that. Now, the reason that metamodernism, as, as our two gentlemen describe it, uh, made me so angry is because I see in their descriptions of this oscillation the absolute worst in social media slacktivism, uh, as I call it, and as obviously other people call it as well, uh, at work here. I mean, it is a sort of self-righteous moralism that doesn't even have the persistence to stay true to its own convictions. Uh, You know, I'm going to tell you you're an awful, awful person because your politics differ from mine. Uh, But then if you start to, you know, press the nature of political philosophy per se, uh, then I'm going to tell you you're taking it too seriously. Uh, So, I mean, just on a visceral level, that's that's what got my goat. Now, on an intellectual level, I'll go ahead and make my critique. I think that what I think of as, you know, sort of the hallmark of a postmodern theology after the model of, you know John Milbank or David uh, David Bentley Hart, uh, or you know what I think of as sort of a a radical orthodox or a post liberal post modern theology, uh, which is the central place of a decentered confession, uh, as opposed to a universal reason. What these guys have done is they've said, well, instead of doing the particularistic confession. Uh, or even the particularistic micro-narrative, as Leotard might put it, Uh, they say instead, let's do a sort of, um, well, I mean, I'll I'll go ahead and use their phrase. I mean, let's live as if a Kantian universal reason were actually tenable. And again, my own, uh, you know, biblical studies postmodern approach says, all right, the whole idea of postmodernism is to stop living according to these things if in fact we think that they are lies and you know this uh this modernism as i see them laying it out says well let's go ahead and grab a hold of the lie because it's cool to do that so i mean michael i'll go ahead and let you since you've been so far the the biggest defender of these guys i mean am i misreading them or am i reading them right but you still want to defend them or what's going on here man
0: i um I, I agree that, that this could very well be a combination of the worst parts of modernism and postmodernism. But <laughs> I mean I, I, I don't doubt that. But couldn't it also be a combination of the best parts? I mean could Convince this, me. Couldn't this also be and I'm not saying it always is, and I'm not I'm not even saying that they want it to be, but could couldn't this be a way to live in hope at the same time realizing that you're doomed. I mean, and, and maybe it, maybe it's because I'm the southerner here, even though you guys are the ones who actually live in the South. But but there's <laughs> yeah. an, there's an appealing lost causeness to to uh, to this for me. And I mean, southerners are born loving the lost cause, right? It's, it's it's in our DNA. But but this, I I really love the idea that that we know this is doomed. <laughs> we we know this is going to collapse into nothingness, and yet we have to we have to pursue it anyway because it's the only option available to us
1: and see I see that as the polar opposite of the theological virtue of hope Uh, we confess that the eschaton is coming and in the meantime we live with the suffering that must be in the time between the times Hmm. so like I said I mean I, I still I mean even after having read the piece a second time, I'm still convinced that, I mean, uh, this is the worst of postmodern or yeah, I'll say postmodern consumerism, uh, sort of glorified as a, an attempt at a philosophical system.
0: <laughs> I don't, I don't see where consumerism comes in.
1: Oh, because I mean, it's, you know, uh, you grab onto the lost cause, you grab onto the, uh, the thing that you know isn't true as a sort of posture, as a sort of moralistic posturing, and I see that as as inherently consumeristic. I'm going to try on this idealism because it looks good.
0: Why does it have to be because it looks good though? Couldn't it?
1: Could, well, what's the alternative?
0: Because you want it to be true.
1: Well, I mean, isn't that consumerism? I buy this because I want it.
0: <laughs> I mean, consumer. The, consumerism may be one way to read that. I think there are other ways to read it as well. Not just, I mean,
1: okay, well, give me an alternative because I'm still not getting this.
0: I, I still, I still think this is a species of hope.
1: Oh, fascinating. I
0: mean, I, I, maybe I have a different definition of hope than you do, but I mean, it, it, it seems to me that, that, that you're affirming something that deep down you feel is not true, but you that it is. And so you affirm it anyway.
2: <laughs> you know, what, uh, it, it yeah, Danny, play the referee here. <laughs> well, at one point in the essay, they they talk about this being kind of a, a neo romanticism,
0: uh-huh. uh, and
2: and I think that that could be the common ground here. <laughs> I think that uh, that was interesting to me, and as a way of uh, and they talk about how that also followed this sort of uh, uh, you know other philosophical movement that is akin to postmodernism, and and, and so I feel like um, um, that notion is a way to express commitment um, that I don't think the ideas of metamodernism as they present it necessarily um, values enough it is commitment to something. And, and I feel like when you're talking about um, Michael, when you're talking about um, the lost cause, for example, right? Um, I don't necessarily, I, I, when I think of that, I think of raging bull and uh, Jake Lamada getting beat to death by uh, sugar Ray Robinson, uh, in that movie. And, and he loses terribly, but he tells it, Ray, I never went down. I never went down. And, like his face is all like blistered. I mean, he's a terrible person, but, um, but I, I feel like that's at least a commitment, uh, to some, to, to the, the lost cause in some way that the oscillation doesn't allow for. And, and I feel like that is also a kind of commitment that I associate with the romantics on some level. Um,
0: Cause I mean, I think it, I i, I think the, I mean a lack of commitment, but it, it, I think it, I think there's a space open here for committing yourself to something and feeling doubt about it. That, that maybe what you have is a dialectic of hope and doubt. I don't want to use the word faith, but hope and doubt.
1: Hmm. <laughs> yeah. And see, I don't get the hope from there. I mean, when you say, you know, it's not true and it can't be true. That's not hope to me. That's, self-delusion
0: hmm. it may just be that I'm pessimistic enough to believe that all hope is self-delusion
1: <laughs> well and and again I mean that this is part of I mean why I also resist romanticism in its German and British forms because I, I, I do see this duplicity in that movement as well and then you know this might just be my own Aristotelianism raising its ugly head you know I you know uh, and this is a very, very crass way to put it, but I mean, if it's not true, don't waste my time with it.
0: But that's the the least. I mean, you you're praising postmodernism. That that may be the least postmodernist statement I've ever heard. If it's not true, don't waste my time with it.
1: Well, no, because it's a suspicion of these meta narratives that are not true. And again, this is where I, you know, when I think of postmodern, I mean, I think that it's a a crummy label because it tries to bring too many things under the same tent. Sure. So I you know I, my my problem isn't first and foremost with the label modern. my my first problem was with the label postmodern because that names entirely too many th- things to be a coherent label.
0: Well I and I agree with you and I think that's why it's important that we that we point out that they are responding to one thing called postmodernism even if oh, they absolutely. even yeah, if they yeah. think yeah. they're responding to it all. I mean uh-huh. that's a ridiculous statement for them to make.
1: Right, right. <laughs>
0: well, I'm not sure we're going to be able to solve this. No, this, I don't think we are. This is the first are. good fight we've had in a long time, Nathan.
1: Should, should, should we just oscillate to the next thing?
0: Yeah, let's just oscillate. <laughs> there's no um, there's no shortage of books explaining how Christianity is supposed to survive and what it's supposed to look like under postmodernism. But metamodernism, as an idea, is only a few years old now, so we can we can be on the crest of the wave. We were
1: talking about it before it was mainstream. Uh, that's
0: true, yeah. And after that, we'll have to move on to post metamodernism <laughs> You know that, that that thing about this this term is it's it's uh, less it's no more chronological than post modernism. At least I mean for, you hear people talk about post post modernism, which is the most aggravating thing in the world. <laughs> this is this at least uh, you know stops the chronological progression. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um. How can Christianity thrive in a metamodernist world if it should? And uh, in what ways would metamodernist Christianity look different from modern or postmodern Christianities? Uh, and, uh, Danny, let's start with you.
2: Well, my notes for this question are, gosh, uh, and, and I don't really know where to go from there in some ways. Uh, it seems to me, though, <laughs> that the faith that faith in general sort of is the oscillation that these guys are describing uh, as characterizing the metamodernist. And, and so I feel like, um, because a faith is sort of belief in something you haven't seen and all that sort of thing. And, and so I, I feel like a Christianity that has a good sense of Ecclesiastes built into it, a faith, a personal faith that sort of has that um, grounding in uh, meaninglessness, uh, uh, seems to be almost perfectly, uh, it seems to almost perfectly fit the mood of the moment um, that if these Folks are correct in, in describing that moment. Uh, and so I, I, I feel like um, the, way, the way that Christians typically write about postmodernism, to me, makes more sense in terms of metamodernism. I, I feel like it, it isn't really different than the way Christians have, have in, uh, engaged with that term in your sort of popular Christian uh book that you know seems to, for some reason, uh, guide our cultural imagination. Um, and so I feel like um, when we have been saying postmodernism, really this is what we've been describing on some level. And, and, and I, don't, uh, uh, I don't know that there's any sort of new primer necessary for this new movement uh, because it seems to me that we're already sort of thinking about postmodernism in this term.
0: I just want to point out that uh, Danny uh, implicitly agrees with what I just said, Nathan well
1: it's all right i'm I'm all all right being the one guy right out of three uh, <laughs> i've never had a problem with that uh but i if i had to you know say how christianity should engage with metamodernism i would say recognize that i mean this is the ideology that is driving what i would call sort of the obama moment and obviously it transcends the one man barack obama Uh, but it is this idea that, uh, you know, this group of people will, like Michael was talking about, I mean, grab onto this idea that, you know, through government action, we can bring forth a better era and then in the next moment oscillate to keep using that verb, uh, to an utter jaded pessimism. Uh, and it's one of those things I would go ahead and say, I mean, since I'm already in a fighting mood. Thanks, Michael. Uh, I'd go ahead and say that I mean this is a movement that, at least as I encounter it at first here, I'm going to say it's something to resist rather than to appropriate. Uh, I would say that you know ultimately, what I what I referred to earlier as a sort of post-colonial post-modernism is ultimately going to be a more faithful response to the phenomena that bring us the metamodern. In other words. I would I would counsel Christians to resist the temptation to try to encompass both the pessimism and the optimism in one person and instead shift to a third space entirely and be the confessors and the witnesses of eschatological hope rather than this sort of what I would call, and Michael's going to tell me I'm wrong here in a minute and that's okay, uh, what I would call a sort of consumeristic pseudo-hope uh that at the same time will deny that it's really hope at all. Uh so I you know I again if you want to write me off listeners here's your chance to I did cut my teeth in the 90s on postmodernism. I am a Walter Brueggemann type of dude. Uh so I find this uh you know hope in one moment and then pessimism in the next moment at the very least unappetizing. And really, if I think about it for very long at all duplicitous. So is, I'd say see, see, fight, that's the fight, that's
0: the mode I live in.
1: Fight the meta modern. <laughs> but
2: is is I mean, would you say Ecclesiastes uh is a, an example of jaded cynicism?
1: Um here's what I would say about Ecclesiastes. I think that it is a and again, you know, I'm reading it, you know, more as a postmodern than as, as a meta modern reader, okay? So I would say it is a moment that is in dialectical tension with the high flying confessions of Deutero Isaiah or the high flying mosaic moment in Exodus. so I would say both of those are to be held in tension uh not that you know you can be you know a self righteous Moses person one moment and then be an uh i guess a you know a pessimistic jaded Ecclesiastes moment the next moment and look down on other people in a sort of self-righteous judgment in either moment. I think that that's ultimately a sign not of philosophical sophistication, but of a lack of self-reflection.
0: Well, I mean, and I, think, I, I, don't, I well, don't see why metamodernism has to be being a tool to everybody.
1: Well, maybe, maybe it's because, I mean, they opened this thing with the speech from the Obama campaign, and again, this this might be my own personal history coming through here, and I'll grant that because, like I said, I'm postmodernism and we fetishize the self-identification. Uh, but fact of the matter is, I mean, you know, 2008, I mark at the moment where I all of a sudden became a conservative again, not because my thought processes changed, but because the progressives, as they called themselves incessantly after 2008, all of a sudden didn't have any time for suspicion and those sorts of things all right all of a sudden you know I hated Immanuel Kant more than I loved Jesus in 2008 Uh, so I I have a hard time I'll admit separating the self-righteous judgment of the Obama evangelical from this metamodernism concept
0: I mean I think a good rule whatever the philosophy you cling to is Uh don't be a tool <laughs> I mean, I think we can all agree about that. Don't be a postmodernist tool. Don't be a modernist tool. Don't be a metamodernist tool.
1: Well, I can we, agree with that, but I, I would say that there still remains a live philosophical question. Why would you not want to be one? And again, I, I, I find it far more convincing to answer that from a postmodernist framework than I can from. And again, I've, I've only read this one article from the metamodernist stance. But from inside of here, I have trouble articulating why one wouldn't want to be a tool.
2: Well, Nathan, your phrase that you used uh, about keeping things in tension um, that—that actually makes a lot of sense to me, Uh, and and I think that helps me sort of, I think, go to your side a little bit because I feel like that's sort Uh of farmer. Well, a little bit. I feel like (laughs) that is sort of my the the lacks of the lack of sort of uh, fixed you know, ethical position, this, in this oscillation is sort of inherently troubling to me. Um, but the idea of of keeping things in tension in a dialectical sort of way where that's always, you know, one thing carries within it, its own negation sort of, you know, and I feel like that to me is, um, a phrase that helps me sort of, uh, identify my questions about this as a movement. Um, so I appreciate that. Thank you.
1: (laughs) All right, Farmer, take us home.
0: Good consumerist that I am, I'm going to point to a consumer artifact, which is a song by the band, <laughs> which is a song by the band Ockerville River. It's called All the Time, Every Day. And, and in, a, in a real postmodernist turn, and they're as postmodernist a rock band as you're going to find, I think. Um, the song is composed of a series of questions and answers. And, and in fact, in the lyrics, it even says QA, QA. Well, here's the last set of questions to which there is no answer you
2: Don't be ashamed I'm the same
0: Yeah, I'm that way When you pray for grace to come, were you born yesterday? Are you dumb? Are you insane? Don't be ashamed. I'm the same. Yeah, I'm that way, but I try every day and all the time. And I think, I, I think that is the heart of the hope that I find at the center of metamodernism and perhaps where it might dovetail with Christianity is, is this idea when you, these things we say we believe, we recognize that they sound stupid sometimes. We recognize that, um, that there's an abyss gaping beneath us, and yet we continue to do it. And to me, that's hope. To Nathan, that's consumerism. <laughs> well, uh, Danny, what are we talking about next week?
2: I think we'll talk about monster movies.
0: Okay, monster movies, it is. <laughs> Maybe we won't yell at each other then.
2: In the meantime, if you want to
0: yell at us, our our web address is christianhumanist dot org. Our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com. Feel free to write in and tell uh, tell me I'm an idiot, or tell Nathan he's an idiot, or tell Danny he's two in the middle. <laughs> in the meantime thanks for listening thanks guys for uh, fighting with me here for Nathan Gilmore and Danny Anderson and the absent David Grubbs this is Michael Farmer saying let your sins be strong and let your faith be strong
1: into the center of your